Good morning. It's good to see you all. If you're visiting with us, my name's Drew, one of the pastors here. And we're going to be taking time now to consider God's Word from the book of Ephesians. So if you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one under a seat nearby. It's on page 976 in those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, it's not one at home, you can take that one with you. Um, Today, we'd love for you to have it. Uh, So let's all open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 so we can read it together. And we, uh, the preaching here is what we call expository preaching, which really just means that the goal here is to expose God's Word, which means that the most important words this morning are not mine, they're God's from the Bible, and my words are in the service of His Word. And so we're here to read God's Word together and to consider God's Word together because we believe that God is real. He is there, He is not silent, and when He speaks, He changes lives. And so that's what we're expecting this morning. What a privilege. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your kindness in speaking to us. We thank You that Your words are both powerful and gentle, that you speak the truth and you speak it in love. We thank you that you are here with us this morning by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would meet us in all of our need, all of our diverse needs. So many of us in this room, as you know, because you see our hearts, need you so deeply in different ways. And so we pray that you would comfort and assure and convict and awaken and surprise uh, us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue in the book of Ephesians, we want to keep the big picture of this book, this letter in mind. It has essentially two parts. The first part, gospel doctrine. The second part, gospel living. The first part's gospel doctrine, so it teaches us the realities of who God is and how He rescues us through His Son, Jesus. It's the good news that God has brought into the world through Jesus. And then the second part of this letter is gospel living. It shows how every single aspect of life should be and can be impacted and transformed by this gospel doctrine, by this good news. So both parts are important. I think of the first one as fuel and the second one as the steering wheel. So gospel doctrine in the first half of Ephesians is the fuel. It gives us a whole new mindset, a whole new perception of reality so we can perceive how life really is, a whole new worldview we could say. It fills us with joy and hope. It fills us with a sense of life and light and motivation to live differently. We can't live the Christian life without this fuel. If we just try harder, it doesn't work. It leads to pride if we pull it off in our own strength or despair when we fail, which we will. The second part is the steering wheel because as we have fuel and we're having this energy from God's grace and the gospel doctrine, we need to, help, we need to have help connecting the dots to know where to go. So we need guidance from God. So this second half shows us how to steer. So this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 15 to 23, and this shows us that the whole process of receiving this fuel and of having this steering in life. This whole process is not something we can act on our own. We, we don't just come here to learn true things 
and then, and then apply them to life. So we don't think about reading the Bible or learning theology or coming on Sundays as learning things merely. And then we take those and we try hard to put them into action in our life. I mean, there's truth to that. But what this text shows us is there's something way deeper going on that needs to happen in order for those things to even really happen. And it's this. We need God himself by the power of his spirit to let these truths we're learning in our heads drop down into our hearts to change our motivations, to change our desires, to change our wills so that we then can live differently. We'll have the motivation to live differently. So God transforms us by these truths. And if that's true, then the centrality of prayer in the Christian life makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because we need God. And that explains why this text exists. So let's read it together. Beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, if we want to know how to pray, this is a great example. It shows us what kinds of things to pray for. It shows us what kinds of things to value. But the main reason why this text is here is not just to teach us to pray. That's a secondary reason. Paul's not merely saying, I want to give you a model for how to pray here. The main reason this is here is to teach us what we need that we may not know we need. What does he ask God to do for them here? What does he think Christians need most? So this is the Apostle Paul in the first century writing this church of believers in the church of Ephesus. Many of them have been believers for a long time now. And he's writing to them and he's revealing through this prayer what he thinks they need. So what's on Paul's mind? He says, I pray constantly for you. I'm always thinking about you and thanking God for you and praying for you. And this is on my heart for you. This is what I ask God to do for you. This is what I think you need. I mean, I think if I... Uh, found a letter that my grandfather perhaps had written before he passed away. And in that letter, he started to say something like, I think about you always, writing to the family all the time, and I keep praying these same prayers for you all the time. I'm just praying for you. I would want to know. I wouldn't be thinking, wow, this is going to teach me how to pray, though it would. I would be thinking, because I respected my grandfather so much, what was on his heart for us? What was so important for us that he kept praying for us? And then I would, I would begin to even subconsciously embrace that as a sense of my own need. If he thinks I need it, I probably just, So here's the Apostle Paul praying. What does he think Christians need most? He doesn't pray here for circumstances to change. 
He doesn't pray for those who are sick in Ephesus to feel better. He doesn't pray for those who are looking for a new job to find happiness with a new one. He doesn't pray for their upcoming travels. Those are good things to pray for. Paul prays for those kinds of things often. But they're not what we most most deeply need. And so that's not what Paul most often prays for. These are not the things that most often come out of Paul when he prays. This, this prayer of Paul is typical of the other prayers of Paul that we find. And what does he say? Instead, he prays essentially this, that we would know God more deeply. The heart of it all. He prays that we would be filled with awe as we go deeper and deeper into our knowledge of and relationship with the God who made us. So Paul's overarching request is that we would know God more deeply than we ever have before. And then he fills this out and explains this with four requests. And we'll walk through each one. The requests are that we would know who he is, what he plans for us, what he thinks of us. What do you think God thinks of you? How does he feel toward you? And the power that he has toward us. So who God is, what he plans for us, what he thinks of us, and the power he has toward us. So first, Paul's primary prayer is for the believers to know who he is. Look at verse 7 with me. He prays, that the, or 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So that last part, that in the knowledge of Him is the key phrase. He wants believers to grow in their knowledge of God or in knowing God. Now that may sound somewhat surprising. Isn't that what's already true of anyone who's already a Christian? To be a Christian is to come into a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him. And so Paul's writing mainly, this letter mainly to people who have already done that. They know God. And yet he praise that they would know God, that they'd grow in their knowledge of Him. So in a sense, this is normal to, Christ, to normal life anyways, because we know what it's like to know a friend and to want to grow an understanding of a friend, right? We know what it's like to know people and want to know them more deeply, because we can say we know God, but that doesn't mean we know Him accurately. Sometimes we make things up about God, and we don't even know it. And so we need to learn the truth about who God is and to know Him according to who He really is. So Paul prays this prayer above all others that we might know God better. Jesus said that eternal life is at bottom this. This is John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The Apostle Paul looked at all of his accomplishments And he said they were all nothing compared to knowing Christ. In Philippians 3.8, he said this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah said this, Thus says the Lord, this is what the Lord said through Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. In other words, don't boast in your accomplishments how great you are, how successful you are, how smart you are, what educational status you have, what role you've made it to. God says, let him who boasts boast in this, one thing, that he understands and knows me. 
I was having coffee with someone just last week, and I was struck by the simplicity of how he talked about the calling of Christians to share Jesus with other people. And he just said this, we want people to know the God who created them and who created them to know Him. That's why we were made. We weren't made to accumulate things, but to connect deeply, to connect deeply in relationships with, with others and most deeply with God Himself. And notice the emphasis here on knowledge. He prays that we would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So wisdom, revelation, knowledge. So the deep conviction underneath Paul's prayer here is that we can know God more. You can know God more. And you can not only know more about God, but you can know Him more deeply. You can know Him personally. You can experience Him. So there's an important relationship between knowing about God and knowing God. It's important to see two things at once. So first, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, right? Sounds obvious, but we can kind of forget this in practice in a functional way because we can know about God without knowing Him. We can learn more and more about God without actually knowing Him more deeply. We can listen to sermons and lectures and read books and read the Bible. We can become really smart about knowing things about God, and we can, it doesn't mean we actually know Him personally. I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I do not know Michael Jordan. If I pretended to, he would ignore me. <laughs> Second, the way that we know God, so they're different, knowing about God and knowing God, but the way that we know God is in large part by knowing more about Him. It happens through that avenue. So as we learn more about Him, that is the primary pathway toward knowing Him. So these are distinct and different, but inseparable. We cannot say that we know God if we don't care to know what He's like. We can't say we value knowing God if we don't crack open our Bibles regularly to hear from Him who He really is. We can't say we value knowing God if we don't care about doctrine, because doctrine is essentially learning more and more about what God is like. We're all theologians. The question is, are we good theologians? Do we have true thoughts about God, or have we made things up about Him? So those are the two things to always keep in mind. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God, and the way we know God necessarily involves knowing more about Him. So this is why we're immersing ourselves in Ephesians together. This is why we're taking a deep dive into God's Word as a church family in this season, because the goal is to know more about God that we might know Him more. And so far in Ephesians, we've actually learned two insights about what it means to know God that we always need to keep in mind. The first part of this letter that we looked at, verses 3 to 14, reveals two key insights about how we actually know God. So this will be somewhat review if you've been here a few weeks, but just consider those verses in light of this question, how do we know God? Here's the first insight. God is triune. God is a trinity. The last few weeks we looked at this incredible section and saw that there's a general movement from seeing God the Father to the Son to the Spirit. 
Paul shows that the Father plans salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, and the Spirit applies salvation. So here's how that helps us know God. Because God's not just kind of an abstract general idea. He's not just an impersonal force. He's not just a single monad out there. He's a very personal God, and He relates to us as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. So we have a relationship not just with an idea about God, but we have a relationship with the triune God, this one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we relate to Him in terms of those persons uniquely. So very practically, here's what it means. When you and I relate to God, we should think about how we're relating uniquely to God the Father and how we're relating uniquely to God the Son and how we're relating uniquely to God the Spirit. So when you pray, for example, you can pray the way that Paul often prays. He prays to the Father, through the Son, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So it's true, we can pray to the Father, we can pray to the Son, we can pray to the Spirit, we should do all three, but the dominant way of praying in the New Testament is praying to the Father. We address the Father, and we do that through the Son. When we say, in the name of Jesus, we're, we're saying we're doing this by the authority of Jesus and through His blood because He died for me to make me righteous so that I'm acceptable in the Father's sight. So I'm praying to the Father in the name of Jesus, which is why we don't say Father and then say in your name because we're not praying in the name of the Father. We're praying in the name of the Son. We're praying through Jesus. And then we're praying in the Spirit or with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so this, this is a beautiful way of relating to God as Trinity. So the first insight from that first part of chapter 1 is that we relate to God, we know God by relating to Him as the triune God, as, as who He is. The second insight is this, we get to know this triune God by learning about how He saves us. God reveals Himself in many ways. He reveals Himself in nature, He reveals Himself in many ways, but He reveals Himself most centrally and beautifully in the way that He saves us. So we don't just think of God in general, giving a general salvation of maybe general forgiveness of sins or something. We think of how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together to bring us salvation. We see that the Father planned salvation. And so we saw these great blessings that the Father is the one who chose us. The Father is the one who predestined us for adoption. And so we thank the Father for choosing us. And then we see that the Son accomplished our salvation. He died for us and we receive salvation by being found in Him or being united to Christ by faith. And then we see how the Spirit is given to us as a down payment of all the blessings of salvation that we receive Him as God's presence in our life, and we're empowered by the Spirit. So God reveals Himself through salvation. This was His plan for all of history. As God planned to reveal who He was and save people and open their eyes to see who He was, this is how He wanted to do it. He wanted to write history and have this beautiful plan of salvation revealed and have salvation, the part of it, reveal who He is as a triune God. So here's the point. Paul prays that we might know more about God that we might know Him more. So that's the overarching prayer for us to know God and know who He is. Now, second, we need to know what He plans for us. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, what an incredible phrase there. We have eyes of our hearts, not just of our, on our faces. There's, there's a perception 
that we can have from the core of who we are about who God is. So having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, here's the request, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. So the key word there is hope. We often use the word hope to refer to wishful thinking. We hope for good weather. We hope our day goes well. But true hope is, is actually way more profound than this. And we experience the need for true hope in different ways. So think about it. What is a central part of depression? Many of you know this. I know this personally. It's a sense of hopelessness, isn't it? Proverbs says, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. We experience that. We have our hope in something, hope for a good future, hope for joy coming, and then it gets kicked down the road. It gets delayed, or it gets delayed beyond the horizon, out of sight, and our heart gets sick. Our heart gets flattened and numb and cold and unfeeling because we have hopelessness. And why do so many of us so often in our culture and relationships turn to overworking or overdrinking? It's because we, often because we have a sense of hopelessness about our future. We don't see things getting better, and so we have these depressed feelings inside that we try to numb through distraction or food or drinking. And when we feel anxious, sometimes this is because of a sense of hopelessness about the future. Just this last week, I was anxious about some things coming up in my own life. Looking at the next few weeks, I get anxious. Nothing necessarily massive or big. You, like many of our anxieties, you'd hear me share and you'd say, well, what are you worried about, right? But I'm worried about things. Anxiety. And it happens a lot. And then verse 18 came to mind. And I realized I'm focused on these next few weeks. And verse 18 allows me to lift the horizon in my mind and see a hopeful future. Uh, good news on the horizon. That's what verse 18 is saying. This is about a hope that comes from God and presses deep inside of us. And we can look at our next few weeks, feel depressed and feel anxious, but there's a greater horizon that we can see out ahead. There's a hopeful future that we trust in God for. And what is that hope? Paul calls it the hope of his calling here. It's the hope that God gives us as we trust in Jesus. The hope of knowing him now and forever. It's the hope of living without guilt and shame because all of that was taken care of at the cross because Jesus died for us. It's the hope of knowing that death itself is the doorway into God's presence for all who are trusting in Jesus. It's the hope that one day a new creation will come and everything will be set right and everything will be made new. I love the way that this hope is expressed um, in how one church speaks of it. It's a church named Emmanuel. They call it the Emmanuel Mantra. I've shared it with you before, but it's been a while. So it goes like this. I am a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. I meet with a group of pastors from the Indianapolis area uh, each month or so, and we study God's Word, and we pray for each other in our lives and ministries. And as part of our time, we always read through a list of encouragements, things that are true, that we it seems so obviously true, but we need to keep believing and setting our hearts on. And so this is one of the statements that we read together every time we meet. Reminding ourselves as pastors, I am a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. So we need these reminders of things that are true uh, to give us hope and encouragement, and the Lord gives it, and He's happy to. Third, we need to know what God thinks of us. What comes to your mind, 
when you think about how God thinks of you, what God feels about you. How does God view you? Do you think that He's mainly disappointed with you? Do you think that He actually doesn't maybe think about you at all because He has more important things to think about and care about? Do you think that He is paying close attention to you, but mainly just to condemn you when you fail and slip up, which you often do, and I often do? Well, here's part of the answer to our question in verse 18. Paul prays that we may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. What's he saying? What is the inheritance here? Well, there's two possibilities uh, to understand what he's talking about. One possibility is that this is referring to an inheritance that God gives believers in Jesus. That would mean that Paul is praying that we would know the glory of this great inheritance that's going to be given to the saints, Christians, all Christians. So this would be God's glorious inheritance for the saints. But many commentators on Ephesians point out that this doesn't refer to God's inheritance for the saints. They point out that this refers to God's inheritance in the saints. That means that this is most likely referring to the saints, all Christians, about, they, they are God's inheritance. It is God's inheritance in the saints. I think that's right. This is what God's people have been called throughout the Bible. Israel was called God's inheritance. Israel was called God's treasured possession. This idea isn't new. It's all over the Bible, but it may be new to us to think of, I mean, think of yourself as part of God's glorious inheritance, that He views you as a treasured possession of, him, of His. I think it's perhaps new to some of us, or we don't think about that much, because it's hard to embrace two things the Bible says about us at the same time, that we are both sinners and saints that we are both deeply displeasing to God, deserving of eternal judgment, and that He loves us deeply, so much that He gave His Son on the cross for us. And this means that God doesn't just put up with us. He actually loves us from His heart. And He made this plan of salvation for us so that we'd be with Him forever. Jesus Christ, enthroned in heaven, is eagerly looking forward to the day when he, the new creation's restored and He's with us, with you, forever, with all those who trust in Him. I think this is why Paul even needs to pray for this reality to sink into Christians. He prays that we would know deep in our bones that we are God's treasured possession. He prays that we would know just how much of a glorious inheritance the church is to Him. And the reason this is so hard to believe is that if we take our own sin and failure and weakness seriously, we know that we are not glorious in and of ourselves. That's the whole point of the Bible's teaching on our sin. We have failed to reflect God's glory. But the incredible surprise of the gospel is that God has still decided to treasure us. He welcomes us into His heart, like the father in that story of the prodigal son. The son squanders everything, rejects his father, brings shame upon the father. And then he starts coming back, and the father just runs to him eagerly and hugs him. The father's eager to welcome us. 
So this is what's so incredible about the message of the gospel. The heart of the message of Jesus Christ is that we are far more sinful and flawed than we even yet know. And some of us know plenty of it, and we feel lousy enough about it. There's more. We don't know the half of it. But at the same time in Christ, we are more treasured as God's inheritance than we could ever imagine. Ephesians 1.18 exists to convince us that if we really believe this deep down, more and more, it will change our lives. Here's one way it would change your life and how it would change really the whole culture of Christianity in America, if we really believed it. This truth suffocates snobbery. That's right, snobbery. Here's how. Joseph Epstein's an American essayist, and he wrote a series of essays compiled into a book titled Snobbery, and he gets to the very end of this book, and he says a couple incredibly profound things. First, he gets very transparent and admits that judgmentalism, this sense of superiority, this snobbishness that comes out, is a deep part of him. He spends a whole book talking about this. Towards the end, it's a deep part of him. He says that his judgments of other people serve to reinforce his own sense of superiority. Even just little judgments all the time throughout everyday life. And he said if he didn't make all of these judgments, that he would feel like he didn't exist because it's such a deep part of his consciousness. Do you feel that? Do you have enough self-awareness to see that that may be the case for you as well? Well, He's speaking for all of us, really. We have a deep need to feel like our point of view is right, our preferences are best, and we are actually better than other people because of all of this. And then he ends with this. He wrote, Snobbery will die on the day when none of us needs reassurance of his or her own worth, when kindness and generosity, courage and honor are all rightly revered. But until that precise day arrives, please don't mark your calendar just yet. Snobbery appears here to say. Do you here to stay? Do you hear that? Snobbery will die on the day when none of us needs reassurance of his or her own worth. That's a profound insight. We posture ourselves above others. We fill our minds with judgments of each other because we need a reassurance of our own worth. But what if what if there's something beyond what Joseph Epstein knows? What if we already have a decisive reassurance of our worth? What if we have a settled reassurance? And what if that reassurance is from God Himself? What would happen if we actually step into our day and step into our workplace, step into conversations with friends, and neighbors, already assured of our worth. We don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need to make ourselves feel better by throwing out comments and one-upping and making sure everyone knows how special we are and then judging others in our minds. We can do that because we have this reassurance from God Himself. We're His treasured possession. And Paul's praying, and we should pray that this reality would sink down deep into our hearts because it will transform us for our joy and the joy of everyone else around us. 
and as cultures of churches change, it changes the culture around us as well because it would get the attention of the world if Christians didn't walk around with this sense of superiority that some people perceive they have, right? If we walk around really believing the gospel, really believing that God loves us this much, and then walking with this, this sense of settled calm, then we just can't help but be kind to others because we're now humbled and low and we want to honor people. Fourth, we need to know the power that God has toward us. That's the last part of the prayer. Verse 19 introduces us to it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? So if you're a Christian, God has immeasurable power toward you. If you've not yet trusted Christ, God has that immeasurable power ready to be unleashed on you. And He's using that power in our lives, and He can use that in our lives. So the Christians in Ephesus lived in a culture where power was really important, and in particular, spiritual power. They believed in spiritual power. They had a huge temple to the goddess Artemis. They had probably 50 or so other gods and goddesses that they worshipped. A lot of them lived in fear. We read about how many of them became Christians in the book of Acts, and they became Christians, and they just started burning their magic books because they were using them, living in, in fear of these spiritual forces. Now, there's many places in the world that still live in this kind of fear because they're aware of the power of spiritual forces. We tend to downplay this in Western and modern culture, but there's still many pockets of American culture that recognize the truth, that there are spiritual forces at work in this world. And not all of them are friendly. Some of you have experienced uh, very dark realities. And Paul is speaking to people who know these realities. He, they're aware of these forces. And he doesn't say to them, to encourage them, they don't really exist. He doesn't say that demonic forces or spiritually dark forces don't really exist. What he says is this, God has power over them all. And he's shown it in history, in space and time history, by raising Jesus from the dead and by enthroning him over all things as the king. And he doesn't leave it in the abstract, and neither should we. So notice he doesn't say, you just need to know that God is powerful. You just need to know that God's the creator. He gets very specific and historical. So when he points us to Jesus, he really just points us to two main realities, Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' enthronement. Look at verse 20 with me. So he's expanding on this prayer that we might know the, the greatness of his power toward us. So he says, his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So when it says that Jesus is seated, it doesn't mean that he's found a chair to relax on. This is enthronement language. He's raised from the dead and he has taken his position as the cosmic king. The king over all things and in particular over all powers and authorities, whether physical or spiritual, whether now or in the age to come. He's over it all because he's conquered death and he's been risen as the king. So maybe you've experienced these spiritual forces in your life. There's no reason to think it isn't real. But what this says is that Jesus is the king, and if you're his, then he's for you. He's with you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're safe. I wish we could keep going, but I'll wrap this up. 
Do you feel hopeless? In Christ, you have a hope to which he's called you. Do you feel worthless? Not right now, maybe, but just throughout everyday life. Do you, have a, do you live with a sense of feeling worthless? In Christ, you have been made part of God's glorious inheritance. He says to you what he said to Israel in Isaiah 43, verse 4. You are precious in my eyes and honored, glorious is the word, and I love you. Do you feel weak? God has immeasurable power working in your life. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that enthroned him as king over all things is at work toward you. And as Paul's about to say, one of the ways you see this is in the fact that you have faith. Jesus was dead and God raised him and seated him. Paul goes on to say, and you were dead and he raised you and seated you with Christ. In other words, if you're a Christian, it is a miracle of incredible power from God. He opens the eyes of our hearts to see. It's no small thing. Might have felt like a small thing, might have felt kind of gradual, might have happened when you were young and, and it, you couldn't even really perceive the, the shift that happened, but if you are in Christ, this massive miracle happened to you. And that's God's power toward you. And how do these truths we believe in our minds get pressed into our motivations? How do we experience these truths and actually live in light of them? Well, the answer is seen in just stepping back and noticing what Paul's doing here. Paul's praying. He's just telling them what he prays for. He's praying for God to do what only God can do, which is to convince us of these realities, to work these into our hearts so that we'd live in light of them. In verse 17, he refers to the spirit of wisdom, the, the Holy Spirit of wisdom. Verse 18, he refers to the eyes of our hearts being enlightened as God shines light into our hearts to perceive these realities. And that's what needs to happen for these realities to actually change us, to penetrate into our hearts. There's something deeply experiential here. God's Spirit is the one who takes these truths and puts them deep into our hearts. Maybe you've sensed this has been happening to you even the past 40 minutes or so. As these truths have been worked into your heart and you've been surprised by grace and encouraged or comforted or convicted, that is God by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart this morning. And that's why Paul's praying, because we can't just teach these things, we can't just read these things. We have to experience them by the Spirit. So in short, here's what we need. Two things. We need to think deeply, and we need to pray dependently. And we won't grow without both of those. Our life won't change without both of those. We need to think deeply because this is about knowing God, and we can't know God without knowing who He is, what He's like, what He plans for us, what He thinks about us the power that he has toward us. We're all theologians, and we want to grow as good theologians. So we want to think about who God is according to reality and the truth. So we want to keep growing, and we grow as we study God's Word. I've never known a Christian who grows deeply and consistently and steadily who is not also a regular Bible reader. Opening God's Word regularly, faithfully, hearing God Himself speak about who He is and who we are and transforming us. It just doesn't happen. We do not grow steadily, deeply, consistently without it. We also, though, need to pray dependently because we won't change unless these truths that we 
speak of to one another and talk about and read and hear unless they're pressed into the core of who we are. So very practically, let's pray for one another like Paul does for these people. Let's not just pray for ourselves, let's pray for one another. Paul's modeling this kind of prayer for other believers. So when you pray alone, when you pray as a small group, when you pray with your family or a friend, pray for Zionsville Fellowship. Pray for for us together as a church family that we would deepen in knowing God together. In the prayer list in the news sheet every week, there's at the very top of it some quotation of one of Paul's prayers to set our priorities for how we can pray for one another. So take that and use it during the week and just pray through those prayers to set the priorities. One way to pray for one another as well is to pray for our time together on Sunday mornings. There's a group of you who partner with me in praying for our, our services and the sermons together. Um, if you want to join that group, it, I just send an email out every Friday or so for, for you to join with me in praying for God to do what only He can do. If you'd like to join that group, please let me know. Send me an email. I'll add you to that list. That's a way we can pray for one another for these realities. And also pray for other churches. Paul here is praying for a church he's nowhere near at the time. It's not his home church. I know a number of great, happy, faithful, gospel-believing pastors around Indianapolis, and there are so many great churches in the Indianapolis area. Let's pray for them to know God even more. Let's pray for, for them according to this kind of prayer, that the Lord might grant renewal and revival in the Indy area. So this is our deepest need to know God himself more and more. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're joining our hearts together right now and our minds to come to you and to thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for working this great, immeasurable power toward us. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and enthroning him over all things. And we pray that you would help us know you more and more. We pray that that would happen through everyday life as we encourage one another in friendship, in our small groups, in our families, in our friendships. We pray that you would Help us grow as a church family to know you more. We pray for other churches in the area, even this morning, right now, as they're gathered together under your word, that you would reveal yourself through your word and strengthen them and encourage them and draw them close to yourself. So we pray that you'd bring renewal in the Indianapolis area through this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to receive a benediction from God's word. And as a reminder, benedictions are like bridges between the grace we receive in this service from God's Word and everyday life. And so we want to see that grace carried over into everyday life because we recognize that according to God's Word, there's no divide between sacred and secular, between Sundays and every day. All of life is sacred. All of life matters. So here's a benediction from God's Word. May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Go in peace.